Here's where we are. We've been in this series called Christ and Culture. This is the fifth and final week. We'll have a standalone next week where we finish out with the Lord's Supper uh, next week at all the campuses. And then we're going to actually go into like six weeks of what's called Love Your Neighbor. And there's a bunch of exciting announcements, uh, a lot of ministry opportunities and so forth during the course of that uh, month and a half or so. But here's where we've been Christ and Culture. What we're asking is how do you walk in the way of Jesus in this cultural moment that we live in now? All right. The culture is basically defined as a widely held set of beliefs and values. And so you and I live in this culture. And if you're a Christ follower, how do I navigate uh, living as a Christ follower in these particular cultural scenarios? And what we tried to lay out in week one or the book, kind of the bookends of what all of these uh, need to fall under. And what we looked at is we looked at how did Jesus deal with, you know, with, a partic- with particular people. And one of the things we did is on one hand, what we put is, is Jesus had deep compassion for people. He had deep compassion. And we in turn then said, we want to have deep compassion, kind of come at it from a deep sense of humility. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ demonstrates his love for us. In other words, our sin was so bad it nailed Jesus to the cross. So there ought to be a sense of the Christ follower of deep humility and how God was to me, I want to be to other people. All right, That was like one bookend. On the other bookend, what we said is we also want to have strong conviction, all right? The Bible says, you know what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we serve a gracious and merciful and compassionate God. We also serve a holy God who said, this is the way of human flourishing. Walk in it, all right? So what we've tried to do in some tense, tense Sundays is navigate it with those things in mind. Now, I would say this, by way of introduction, the topic we're going to talk about today, I have touched on a number of times over the 11 years that, that my family and I have been here. We've never actually uh, devoted an entire morning to it. And as I study this week, I begin to think, why? Why is that? Why have I never devoted a whole morning to it? And uh, several things came to mind. Mostly, I guess the main thing that I thought is I would be just kind of, quote, preaching to the choir. In other words, I would be up here trying to convince people who are already convinced And what I've learned is that is not necessarily or entirely true. A couple other reasons. Number one is many disciples of Jesus do not know how to either logically or scripturally um, talk about this in the marketplace of ideas. Intimidated, uh, not sure where to go get silenced for maybe some kind of red herring arguments. And you're like, well, I just don't have anything, so I'm just going to be quiet. So part of it, I would say, is like, okay, i got to disciple our folks, which has really been the whole point of this series. It's not been to drive stakes in the ground nearly so much as it has been responding to the summer's email for you saying we got to be discipled in a couple of these areas because we don't know how to navigate them at all. And then lastly, I've, I've found out this week, I mean, there is so much pain involved in this area. I mean, an amazing amount of pain. Many of you, many of you, many at our church this morning have walked in this area, have walked this road, both male and female, obviously. And we talk about it, there's no way to soften it. Either, either you have participated in you know, an abortion with your own body, maybe you have funded it for somebody else, maybe you have performed it, uh, because of you know a particular position that you hold, and the pain involved is multifaceted. But one of them is what I've learned from your emails, as well as been just been in doing pastoring for a long time. Is this is there is deep, deep shame and scars involved in this? There's a lot of victims in this. All right, not even 
not just the baby, but there's also the moms. A lot of shame. A lot of, uh, how do I deal with this weight that is there? I've heard your emails. I don't know how many I get every time we come up on Mother's Day. I can't go to church on Mother's Day because of what happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I just don't want to go to church and be reminded of it. And yet, obviously, Mother's Day comes along and you are reminded of it. Of it. And sometimes uh, when somebody's like, you know what, every time this baby's birthday, what would have been their birthday comes along, I'm just shackled with a tremendous amount of, of shame. And so if abortion is part of your story, if it's part of your story, I do want you to understand God wants to forgive. God wants to forgive. God wants to shower grace. Uh, shame is not one of his tools, all right? Conviction is one of his tools. Grace is one of his tools. Shame is not. He wants you to be able to leave church today saying, you know what? I, I left the shame at the foot of the cross today because of what Jesus did on a cross 2,000 years ago. Because he himself was killed, he died in my place. And if I will repent and come to him, all my shame, my sin can be as far as the east is from the west. It can be put behind my back. You need to know that today. I've been thinking about you all week. All right, so that ghost, that shame, that thing that haunts you, that can be done. And the reason you're like, aren't you being melodramatic? I mean, not too many folks here. Uh, statistics conservatively estimate that one-third, one-third of American women at some point in their life uh, have had or will have an abortion at some point in their life. Uh, some of the women have never shared that secret with anybody else it's been called the silent killer, not just of the babies, but of the mom who's, moms who possessed deep wounds and dark scars from their past history. So I want to tell you, I want to be sensitive to that today. I don't presume to know all that you're going through, all that you're thinking. What I can say is there is not one sin that has more power than the cross of Jesus all right, there's not one sin that has to remain burdened on you. It can be given over to Jesus. And so what my purpose today is, is I want to be super clear about how a holy God views abortion. I've got to, all right? You don't need somebody saying peace, peace, where there is no peace, all right? That's a hireling. You don't need that. And so I want to be clear about how a holy God views abortion, but I also want to be equally clear about how a loving God views you in the gospel. I want you to see the both and. He is not just a righteous God who is angered by our sin, but he is a merciful father who wants to save us from our sin. And so when we go through that, I understand there's tension. Uh, you're not going to hear, you're like, you're funny most of the time. I'm not going to be, there's nothing funny today at all, right? Uh, serious, very serious today. And uh, this is not a political issue. This is not, unless you make it political, this is not a civil rights issue. This is a Jesus issue. This is a gospel issue. So we're going to deal with this. And what I want to do is try to do it this way. I want to say, okay, what does the scripture say? If you're, not, if you're new here, what our typical MO is, is we take a section of scripture and we stay there the whole time. With some of these topics, they're so broad and so multifaceted, it's a little bit better to maybe take a broad brush view and that's what we'll do today. So, but I want to say, what does the scripture say? Then I want to address some objections that people have. All right, we need to think logically. Okay, if this is true, then what about this? So first the scripture, secondly objections, and then for all of us. Uh, a word of hope, a word of help. There's some resources that are at the church today. They're in the lobby. Uh, how do we love both the unborn and the born? 
But bottom line, here's what I want to go back to over and over again. And I would say this. I know some of you are like, I don't even believe the Bible. and Forget the stuff you're about to show me. Okay. With that in mind, I know we're all over the place. Here's the question. This is the key question that is the question that you have to ask no matter what it is. And if the way you answer this question is actually the entirety of the arguments either for or against. And here's the question. The question is, what or who is contained in the womb? What or who is contained in the womb of the mother? You answer that question, and the answer to that question dictates absolutely all the time, 100%, what your view is going to be. You've got to answer the question. Is it a person? Is it a zygote? Is it an embryo? Is it a clump of cells? Is it a fetus? Every other question, every other argument in the abortion controversy comes back to this question. Who or what is in the womb? Now, I'm going to say it again. This is a very controversial issue. It's not necessarily super complex. It's controversial. It's not necessarily complex. It is as simple as answering that question because that question is the entirety of the argument on both sides of the equation. One author put it this way, and he put it very succinctly. He said, quote, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is even necessary. However, he says, if the unborn is a human person, there is no justification for abortion. No justification for abortion is adequate. He said, abortion is a complex issue, and there just aren't any easy answers. Those people who say that, he said, but what if in the womb is a person, then even that person that has all these arguments, those end up falling apart when you answer the question, that is a person in the womb. So that question, what or who is in the womb is as simple as thinking of it this way. Let's say you're at your desk. You're at your desk. Your back is to the door. Your, little, your child walks in, and without turning around, they come up to your back, and they ask this question, Daddy or Mommy? They ask the question, "Is Daddy, can I kill this? Now, you don't even know what this is. That's the question. If you don't have your face to them, and they say, Daddy, can I kill this? What's the first thing you got to ask? What is this? What is this? If it's a spider, by all means, squash that thing, all right? If it's a snake, cut the head off, all right? If it's little Timmy down the street, you cannot. And so going back to the question, the, let me make a blanket statement and then we'll walk through it. The biblical writers, and I know, I, I know some of you are not Christ followers, and I know some of you are like, I don't really care what the Bible says. Those of you that are Christ followers, those of you that understand God wrote a book, hear me very clearly. The biblical writers constantly, consistently talk about unborn babies as full persons made in the image of God and deserving of the rights given to all people. I'll say it again. When you look at these verses, what it shows is that the Bible writers consistently talk about unborn babies as full persons made in the image of God and as such are deserving of the rights given to all people. You're like, you're going to have to show me that in the Bible. I came prepared. Here's the first one. Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. Now again, inward parts, that's amazing right there. This is like way before sonograms, way before we could see like the baby in the 
Here's David going, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now again, these are, this is poetic language. Christians know that if you did a sonogram, you're not gonna see God the Holy Spirit in there with a bunch of knitting crochet, okay? That's not it. What he's saying is that God is sovereign over the whole mechanism of how babies are made. I praise you, this is his response. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret. Choose your own imagination there. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. I mean, so many things just in that one. He's saying that God is creator. He has power over life. He has power. He has the authority to give life, to take life. Then he says, my inward parts were intricately woven. And again, they didn't know the developments. They didn't know the stuff we know. Just jotted some of these things down. They didn't know about, okay, early on a human heart is beating, circulating its own blood, Within a few more weeks, fingers are forming on hands and brain waves are detectable. Before long, all these, quote, inward parts are moving. Kidneys are forming and functioning, followed by a gallbladder. Then by the 12th week, 12th week, all of the organs of a baby boy or girl are functional and he or she can cry. All of this occurs within three short months. A heart, a brain, organs, sexuality, movement, reaction. He's like the creator of the universe is orchestrating all of this. Now, on a side note, what this says is God's involvement in your life is amazingly detailed. Your personality, your physical structure, your dominant genes, your recessive genes, it's talking about, you know what? He had intricate oversight over all of that for your good and for his glory. Here's a couple of more. Jeremiah 1.5 says this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. You see what I'm saying? God is saying, before you were even in the womb, I had your days numbered. You were gonna be called out to be a prophet to a nation even before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, and this was great encouragement to him. Let me give you one more, Psalm 22. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. He's talking about development. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. We can just go on and on. Scripture speaks of God calling, naming, blessing children, all while they're still in the womb. Genesis 1.27 says he has made man, he has made woman in my image. I've made you in my image. You look even over to uh, the gospel accounts and you see all the different gospel accounts when the Messiah in Matthew 1, God talks to Joseph and he says, you know what, before you came together, she was with child and it's just, it's in the womb at this point. So God says, Joseph, don't be afraid, take her for the child that is conceived. He didn't say for the embryo that is conceived. He didn't say for the fetus. He didn't say for the zygote. He said for the child that is conceived. Then you go to another gospel, and when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, 
John the Baptist, she's pregnant with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is approximately six months ahead of where Jesus is. Jesus, basically, the dating. Jesus, at this point, is like a zygote, okay? John the Baptist is six months ahead. And the scripture says that John the Baptist, while still in the womb, leapt when he came into the presence of the Messiah. And that is amazing. He's saying, even right there, they're both in the womb. And he's like, Messiah, Messiah. That is pretty awesome. You can just kind of go on and on and on. And let me give you some... uh, Since 1973, uh, legal, legal abortions in America have taken the lives of 55 million people. That total of 55 million, and this is a couple of years old, so you can increase that. That total of 55 million equals 17.5% of our population. That's greater than any state in the union. It's greater than the population of 219 of the world's countries. You can combine Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, Utah, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. You could take those 19 states and you can get rid of them. That's who has been killed since 1973. Some of you are like, I can't believe that I came to church today. I heard you all were not political. I heard you all just preached. This is a Bible issue. Like, that's not even a baby, bro. That's a fetus. I don't care what the Bible says. Well, let's just just use the words. People are like, that's a zygote. You know what zygote is? Zygote is just the Greek word for to join. Not to draw a description here, but it's basically when the milk and the egg come together. That's what a zygote is talking about. You're like, well, it's an embryo. You know what? Embryo, embryo is Latin for ingrowing. It means something is actually growing. And we know now, even at eight weeks, babies in the womb suck their thumbs. They recoil from pricking, which means if you try to draw blood off the heel of an infant in the womb, it will pick up its leg because it hurts. The baby usually has a heartbeat of around 150 or 160 beats per minute at eight weeks. Fetus is Latin for offspring, so what do you do? You go from offspring to newborn to infant to toddler to child to adolescent to teen to adult to senior adult. But we use a rhetorical games. We use rhetorical kind of wordsmith. We use sleight of hand trying to take off the edge of what is going on. Now listen to me carefully. Don't put words in my mouth. What I am saying is though the rhetorical games have been used throughout history to dehumanize people to make it easy to not think about what's actually going on. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Nazi Germany, they did not just say, hey, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. That's not what they said. They didn't call them Jews. They called them gypsies. They called them the handicapped. They characterized them in cartoons and dehumanizing way. They didn't talk about, let's just put them in the fire. They talked about, quote, the final solution. Now, I did not know till this week that when the allies, General Eisenhower for one, when, they, when the war was won and they went into the extermination, the concentration camps where they were killed, Many of the soldiers, many of our leaders made the citizens who lived right around the concentration camps. 
the ones that lived right there, the ones that saw the smoke coming out of the smokestacks, the ones that knew what was going on, but just kind of walked around it and went on their merry way and went to the bakery and had their tea and all this stuff, knowing that literally feet from them, this was going on. I did not know till this week that many of our leaders made those citizens walk through the concentration camps in order to see exactly what was done and see all those bodies. I'm going to show you one of the tamest pictures that I could find, but it speaks to, the, it speaks to what's going on. And what you see on the screen up here is you see this is a German citizen who lived right outside. This is, these are mass graves right here, and these are some allied soldiers right here. And this is a German woman, and she's dressed in her Sunday best, and her boys are in their nice little Sunday best. And she's, she's having to go by there, but she is forced, she's covering the eyes of her boys. Like, I don't want you to see this. I don't want you to see what's going on. Because before, it was just the final solution. Before, it was just a bunch of gypsies. Before, it was just kind of maintenance. Before, it was just, but you can't not see that same thing that happened in Rwanda the Hutus did not say uh, kill the Tutsi that's not what they said there's some books out here I've recommended to you before they called they called them they didn't they didn't say to kill the Tutsis they they called them cockroaches on radio shows on newspapers on propaganda Uh, the Tutsis by the way are taller than the Hutu And so what they said is, they didn't say, go kill them. Here's what they said. They said, quote, chop down the trees. Chop down the trees. Because they can't say, hey, go kill your neighbor. So they say, just kill the cockroaches. Go chop down the tree. Don't kill a fellow human. And loved ones, I just got to say, our Supreme Court in 1973 said the child in the womb is not a person. The reason that it said that is you obviously can't say, I'm going to kill a person. I mean, I can't kill little Timmy who rubs out the ear on his little bear before he goes to sleep. And so what happens is if I can call it a blob of tissue, a collection of cells, then I can convince myself it's okay to do. Now, logically, logically think this through. What is the difference of eight inches, which is the approximate length of the birth canal? where it is legal to kill the baby 10 minutes before, but if it goes through eight inches of the birth canal outside it, it's it's illegal. That's not logical. What difference does eight inches in the change of location make to the value and the humanness of the baby? Well, obviously none. It makes none. Peter Singer, who was actually the professor of bioethics at Princeton, he actually admitted as much. He said this. He's the guy that put out there saying, hey, parents ought to have the right to exterminate their kids up until the age of two. Now, I understand people have not gone along with that, but what he's doing is he's pushing the logical boundary that, okay, at what point, I mean, is the human value of it? Now, I know there's some objections that come up. And there's some time, it's like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? So let me, let me try to anticipate three objections. There's probably 10. Let me just anticipate three and put a few things under. Objection number one. Objection number one is, you know, it's my body, my rights. And this can be said a number of different ways. And let me just say this. I have, I have some, in some ways, because of the history, not just of our country, but other countries, 
mean, you've got to have at least some degree of, okay, uh, you know, because there is historically at times society has definitely mistreated women, have definitely mistreated children before. That's just a historical fact in some countries, including ours. And so to say, my body, my rights, you can have some empathy for. But the problem with that is scientifically, scientifically speaking, the unborn child is not part of the woman's body. Scientifically, it's not. There's not one science book that you're going to say that's part of the woman's body. The baby has its own DNA, its own blood type, its own brain waves, its own heart, etc. It's in the body, but it is not you. The question it comes back to is, is the baby, is the what's in the womb, is that a human or not? That's the question you got to answer. Um, and by the way, a couple of you are like, you know what, um, I, I don't like it, but I just... We just got to have it safe and rare, and that's the reason it was done. Let me put a couple of facts out there. The typical argument is, you know, that it was uh, overwhelmingly common before 73 uh, for people to die in abortion, and so that's why they made it legal. And loved ones, uh, that is factually not true. From 1942 to 1972, there were the maternal death rate went down from somewhere between 70, it went from about 7,200 all the way to about 780. Of the 780 ladies who died, about 140, only about 140 of those were in any way related to abortion. And so uh, the question is, is that a human, is that a human in the womb? You're like, well, I, I think the second one. Objection number two is women should have a right to choose. And again, we would all agree that nobody has an unlimited right to choose, correct? I mean, nobody in the room today would agree everybody's got an unlimited right to choose. You can't, if as a parent, if your teenager is a burden when they're 16, you cannot then make the choice, you know what, and have a right to eliminate them. So everybody would say, okay, choices at least have some degree of, of boundaries. The, the question you've got to follow up this one with is, okay, which women should have the right to choose? Because statistically speaking, there are more females that are aborted than males. Pretty much in every country, but you look at places like China, in China there are untold amount of selective abortions, almost exclusively saying, get rid of the female, 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 get rid of, get rid of, get rid of, ah, I've got my boy. I don't think any of those would say, yeah, go ahead and abort me. As a matter of fact, uh, guys, just to speak to the depravity of man, in general, ladies are more pro-life than men are in our country. So to sit there and go, you know what, I should have the right to choose. The question is, who's going to get that choice? And here's, here's the other one that actually has some degree you've got to be challenged by, and that is pro-lifers only care about the unborn, not the born. Now, first of all, if a church does not or a Christian does not care about things, what they're saying is this, is you're so concerned about the fetus, but what about the poor? What about the malnourished? What about the education system? What about poverty? What about helping the child after they're born? What about that? All you care about is this fetus, and then you cleanse your hands of it. And I would say where that is true, repentance is needed by the Christian and by the church. Absolutely, we are supposed to minister from basically you can say it from the womb to the tomb we're supposed to do that 
But understand what the argument is. That, un- that argument there is not talking at all about the initial question we talked about, the humanness of what is in the, t- in the womb. That's not what it's talking about. It's kind of an ad hominem attack to basically say, shut your mouth, you're a hypocrite. It's not talking and dealing with the actual issue. It's saying, close your mouth, you're a hypocrite because you fight so hard against abortion, but you won't help people after their birth. It's kind of like a curveball. You get fastball, 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 curveball, and it throws you off. Let me say again, the, the reason that that's a very effective is you can, does anybody in here not think every once in a while, man, I could do more? I mean, I'm going to read you some statistics, and I, mean, I thank God that so many of you do everything from sponsor compassion children to volunteer down at the pregnancy center to give generous, all those kind of things. Thank God for that. But once you've dipped your toe into ministry, once you've gone to a third world country, once you've gone down to help at mountain area pregnancy services, once you've done that, you usually don't go, oh, I dipped my toe in the water of ministry. Now I just feel good and I can go on my American dream. That's normally not what it is. Once you see the need, once you see the hurt, once you understand the gospel and it has stained you, when you see that God's been merciful to me, how can I not be merciful to the people that are hurting? Then you do ask the question, man, I just can't do enough. I can't give enough. I can't serve enough. There's always more that you can do. But you got to understand facts, just trying to take the motion out of it. Here are the facts. The facts are pro-life pregnancy centers outnumber abortion clinics two to one. And almost all of those pregnancy, those pro-life pregnancy centers, they provide things like parenting. They provide things like classes and clothing and adoption services, including maps right out there in the lobby today. They got Bible studies for ladies who have even gone through that, how to help them heal and cope. Two to one. Christians adopt two to one as often as non-Christians. Give far, far, far. Now, we're, we still worship at the altar of materialism as Christians in our country. I mean, I think 100 years from now, people are like, what's the blind spot in your generation? The blind spot in our generation is going to be, without a doubt, materialism, without a doubt. But still, even with that, we give far more to charity. Church, we got to ask this question. You're part of Biltmore Church. You're a particular service, but you're a part of about 12 or 13 that go on on a Sunday. And so you need, you need to kind of not only rejoice, but you also need to, it's like, thank God, but there's more to do. Biltmore Church families currently foster one-fifth of the foster children in Buncombe County, 21%. There's tons more in Macon, tons more in Hendersonville. I don't have the percentage there. But 21% of people, that ones that are being fostered, are fostered by Biltmore Church families. Matter of fact, and other ones, by the way, you help support that. A lot of you mow grass, bring groceries. You're like, I'm 65, I can't foster. Well, you've jumped into the foster support system. Thank you for doing that. You bring groceries, you mow the lawn, you, put, you fix the house because they're so busy with this other stuff, it helps them out. You're like, I gotta be a part of that. I gotta be a part. Again, there are next steps today. Our, all over, we got a volunteer there, we got a volunteer there. They would love to talk with you about it. Uh, who's there as well as the area pregnancy centers are at next steps. And I began to think about, we actually had a team go there this Thursday and just mountain area pregnancy centers this year. That's the one that serves Buncombe County, I think in Henderson County as well. Uh, Just this year, there's been at least at minimum, ones we can tell, there's been 39 ladies that have walked in there uh, whether it be seen the sonogram, been ministered to, there's been 39 that have chosen to take the baby to term and deliver it. And this last Thursday, this last Thursday, we had a, t- Thursday we had a team there, and number 40 came in, saw the sonogram, saw a picture of her baby, and decided to take her, her baby to term. So again, you've got great, great partners out there that are great there to help. 
We'll tell you more about this in a few weeks, but we're in the process of identifying with some of our partners the 1,000 most needy elementary school-age people in Buncombe and Hendersonville and Macon County, all right? And what we're gonna, you know there's actually 300 homeless elementary kids in Buncombe County? That, that is like, that's unbelievable. They're living with mom in a car. We're in the process of identifying them, and you and I will have the opportunity here in November to minister to them in a very substantial way. Just be listening for it. But the idea that you've got to ask is, uh, well, we have to, and I know you're here, and you're like, if you have an unwanted pregnancy, listen to me, please. There is help for you. There are resources available literally today in the building that you're in. There are resources there. We wanna help you. I can't put it any other way. If you're like, I don't want this baby. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't pretend to understand what you're going through. Like, I don't want this baby. We want that baby. Let us have the baby. We will take care of it. We have partners that will get that baby adopted into a good, loving Christian home and give that person a chance. Even in the first, even in the first service, listen to me. We got some hurting people. I'm not trying to... And I'm not trying to go for some applause, right? I would just say this. In between the first and second service, about a 65, 70, early 70-year-old lady came up to me, and she was telling me her story, and that when I was a teenager, I got pregnant out of wedlock, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and they encouraged me to abort it, and I chose not to abort it. And I was like, where's this going? Where's this going? And one of our greeters, she's like, you know the one, my son, he was the one on the front door at this campus welcoming you as you came in. So my point is this, if you're listening online, our office is 35 Clayton Road. Please do not do something that will have irreversible consequences. Listen, we want that baby, let us have it. We will get it into a home that will adopt it, care for it, love it, and you'll be happy. I promise you that baby will be happy. And uh, today you're like, I just gotta have some help. I gotta have some people to pray. I gotta have something, I'm gonna give you that chance. At Next Steps Today, people are just waiting so much. Let us help you. Let us help you. It is there. And so what are we supposed to do? Let me give you a couple things we can do. First one is this. Uh, we need to, like any sin, we need to own our sin and repent of our sin. And because of the gospel, God allows us to run to God in repentance instead of running from God in our shame. If you walked in here and you've got this monster of shame on you, you don't really understand the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived the life you were supposed to live, died in your place, rose from the grave. He can take all those ashes that are your life, that ghost that haunts you every Mother's Day, and he can turn those ashes into beauty, all right? If God can raise his son from the dead, he can raise your life from the ashes and make something amazingly beautiful out of it. And so let me just say this. We're talking about, is God serious about abortion? God is the judge of our sin. He is also the savior and the healer of sinners. And that's the hope we have today. If you have abortion in your past, whether you personally did that, guys, let me just tell you this. Some of you guys, you need to own up to that as well. All right, some of you guys, you not only performed it, but you at least, you, maybe you funded it. Maybe you just walked away. And so you didn't encourage it not to happen. Uh, that's sin and needs to be repented of. Own it, repent of it, get the grace. But again, you need to know we serve a Savior who lived perfectly and died sacrificially so he can make you whiter than snow. 
If you walk out of here today and you're like still burdened down by that ghost of last year, the year before, 10 years ago, listen, there is no tragedy, there is no sin that he will not forgive. Okay, there's not one, there's not one. And so here's what I would say. Uh, I saw this, uh, there's a piece recently by a woman who marched in 1973 in support of abortion rights, had an abortion a couple years later. And here's what she admits. She admits that her decision haunted her for 30 years. She writes, quote, it certainly does make more sense not to be having a baby right now. We say that to each other all the time. She says, I have a ghost now. A very little ghost that only appears when I'm seeing something beautiful, like the full moon on an ocean last weekend. And the baby waves at me. And I wave back at the baby. Of course, of course we have room. I cry to the ghost, of course we have room. Please hear me on this. If you've had an abortion, your baby is with Jesus today. And both Jesus and that baby forgive you if you will receive and respond to the gospel today. The gospel says to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. Isn't that amazing? To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, to those that believe in his name. It's amazing. He said, if you will receive, if receiving just is the idea of belief or repentance, I'm turning from my way of trying to make life work. I'm trying to pay for my own sins. I'm trying to pay off God. And I'm turning to the gospel and the fact that Jesus paid for my sin. That Jesus says, it is finished, and that he paid your sin debt in full. And that if you'll turn to him and respond to the grace that is offered, whether you're a female who has physically had that, whether you're a male that has been a part of that, you'll turn to him in repentance. There's not one sin, there's not one sin he cannot clean. And if that's you, just right there with your eyes open. I got a couple more things to say, but right there with your eyes open. You might be sitting there and it's just like, man, you're holding on to that seat and you're like, when is this gonna be over? There's no reason to walk out of fear with that shame. There's no reason. I mean, God is like right here, it's Jesus is calling. It's like, take your regret, take your shame, take your sin, put it there at the foot of the cross and get the grace you need. And right where you're seated with your head up and your eyes open, you can just pray back to God. God, I wanna turn from my sin. I wanna give this to you. And even if you're a Christian, by the way, some of you are Christian and you still are haunted by that and you can't get over that. And every time God's about to do something new in your life, that shame comes up and you've got to make a decision today as well. And your decision today is, you know what? I'm going to believe the promises of God more than the voices of my shame. I'm going to believe the fact of what the gospel says, that he's going to throw my sin behind his back. I'm going to believe Ephesians 1.7 that says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to believe that way before. And so I'm going to shout those louder than I'm hearing the shouts of condemnation. You've got to make that. But if you're not a Christian, man, today is the day. Today's the day Jesus is calling. All that shame, all that guilt, he's calling you to say, I'm going to lower that. I'm going to put that guilt. I'm coming to Jesus today. I'm repenting. I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of trying to make my life work. I'm going to embrace Jesus by faith. And you embrace him right there. Just tell him, I'm turning to you right now by faith. Make me the person you want me to be. Heal the scars that I have. Take away my shame as I run to you in repentance. Others of us, you know what? It's just a matter of participating. Man, you got to utilize those resources. Maybe you're in a connect group and you guys have just kind of been under the radar and every time Pastor Mike or one of the pastors is like, hey, who's your mission partner? You don't even have a mission partner, right? All you're doing is you go in there and you study your Bible and you gaze at your navel and you don't have anybody you're pouring out to, all right? Then put one of these people as your mission partner. 
All right, go over there, help them out. I don't think there's any mission partner that's like, man, we're just like rolling in the volunteers. We're like rolling in the cash right now. We came in to build more church, cash just coming out of our, nobody did that. All right, they need your help. They need your support. You support it already just in a general budget kind of way, but I will say this, I'm not a prophet or I'm not getting some word from God, but I would say it's probably pretty safe to say there's one or two or three or five of us in here that God is abundantly blessed financially. And God wants you to go to that mountain area pregnancy center and wants you to go to that foster care ministry and go, you know what? Instead of that back deck or instead of that third car, or instead of that boat for the lake, you know what? I'm gonna scratch a check for mountain area pregnancy services for the glory of God, the good of other people, and so that those babies can actually get the support that they need. Just take it for what it's worth, all right? And here's what I would say is uh, Jesus' redemption should forever change your attitude toward those around us who are hurting. Don't write me a letter on this. Christians have oftentimes not handled this well. I understand righteous anger. I understand that. I understand indignation. I understand that. But when you look at the way Jesus dealt with sinners, think of John 8 for an example. In John 8, the lady's thrown in front of him, half naked, been caught in adultery. And what does he do? He looks at them first and draws something in the dirt. We don't know what he drew. But then you remember what he said? He looks at her and he says, like, who condemns you? Who condemns you? He says, I do not condemn you, but then he says, go and sin no more. Great compassion, I do not condemn you. Lifts up her head, I do not condemn you. And then repentance, go and sin no more. You're accepted and based on that acceptance in the gospel, you can go and you can live a different life. Christian, that's the way we're supposed to respond. I want you to picture in your mind some 14 year old girl and she's driving to the abortion clinic. I understand that if you're out there, that's fine. I understand that. There's a lot of good in that. But just understand, what does she see when she sees that? Does she see somebody who hates her as a 14, confused girl? Or does she see somebody that has, yes, has backbone, but also has a heart like Jesus? And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. So we can participate, and lastly, we can pray, and we're going to pray now, all right? It's not the only thing we do. It's not the only thing we do, but it needs to be the first thing we do. It's such a, you can get such compassion fatigue. You look at these zeros and you look at these statistics and you're like, what can be done? What can be done? Ephesians, now to him who is able to do abundantly beyond all we can even ask or imagine to him be glory in the church, all right? Among all generations. And so what I'm gonna ask you to do is bow your heads right now. Bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're a leader at our church, and I mean by that, I mean, if you're on uh if you're on any of the leadership teams, if you're on the leadership teams, if you're a connect group teacher, would you represent our church by just coming to the altar and praying? Pray for the politicians. I pray for our church that we'd have wisdom and discernment and a burden. And I thank God for what God has done, but there's so much more. And we need to be wise. Some of you all, this needs to be like the main call on your life. Like this is... Not everybody can do everything, but like this is, we cannot be passive about this. So just pray and say, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Others of you, it's just like, you know what, I'm gonna, there are gonna be some pastors and maybe their pastor's wives will be up here. And I want you to listen to this song that's gonna be sung over you. It says, are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you think?
thirst for a drink from the well, Jesus is, is calling. And it's like, oh, come to the altar. I know you don't want to, but right there is just freedom. Somebody to pray with you, somebody to pray over you, somebody to pray for you. So heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Maybe you got a friend next to you and you're scared to death. Just look at her, look at him and say, hey, would you go up there with me? Come and pray with this altar. You come and pray with one of these pastors. Say, would you pray for me? You don't have to go into the detail. Say, God, just pray that I would walk out of here as a captive who has been set free. Got to pray the next couple of minutes as song is being sung, as repentance is being said, as tears are being shed, as people are coming, that you would do what you can do, that you would heal, that you would minister, that you would convict, that you would grant repentance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Heads bowed, eyes closed.